to infinity and beyond! You actually think you're the Buzz Lightyear? You are a toy! You are a child's plaything! You're mocking me, aren't you? Whoa, hey, wait a minute. Being a toy is a lot better than being a, a space ranger. Over in that house is a kid who thinks you are the greatest, and it's not because you're a space ranger, pal. It's because you're a toy. You are his toy. And to him, you're his buddy, his best friend. And when Andy plays with you, it's like, even though you're not moving, you feel like you're alive, because that's how he sees you. Life's only worth living if you're being loved by a kid. But what happens when the kids grow up? Welcome to Now Playing's Toy Story Retrospective Series. You got a play date with destiny. Hosted by Arnie. He'll never give up on you. Ever. He'll be there for you, no matter what. Stuart. I've been here years. They'll never break me. And Jacob. You're my favorite deputy. A new podcast is posted every Tuesday, so come back each week for another new show. Then we'd better make sure we're there waiting for them. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. The word I'm searching for, I can't say, because there's preschool toys present. We do a lot of improv here. Just stay loose, have fun, you'll be fine. Today we're talking about Toy Story, starring Tom Hanks, Tim Allen, Don Rickles, Jim Varney, Wallace Shawn, John Ratzenberger, Annie Potts, John Morris, Eric Von Detten, directed by John Lasseter. This is the now playing co-host who is surrounded by child's playthings, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is Jacob. I'm from Mattel. Well, not, not really from Mattel. I'm actually from a smaller company that was purchased by Mattel in a leveraged buyout. <laughs> you mean like Pixar? <laughs> yes. This is a big one, right, guys? This has been highly requested. The people have wanted us to do an entire Pixar retrospective series. I don't want to do Cars. That's like saying, let's do an entire Lionsgate retrospective series or New Line. It's a film studio. It's not really a retrospective. I can see why the case would be made. I also think once you got Cars and Planes, the case is then broken. Well, I mean, we do all the Marvel movies. We're not above it, but I wouldn't be so opposed to it. I do think that there is a certain seal of quality that comes when you sit down to watch a Pixar movie. I've mentioned many a time how I didn't grow up watching Walt Disney movies, and I kind of have a bias against many animated films marketed towards children. Not so with Pixar. I have always really appreciated their craft and can easily be talked into seeing any of their films. I don't always run out and go see them, but I have no bias against anything they've done. They've earned the right to be considered different than your average animation studio. I would agree. I mean, if I had a bias, it, unless it's that Cars franchise, I would give them the benefit of the doubt and go in very positive. I remember Coco came out. I didn't see that in theaters, but when it came to Netflix, I'm like, eh, I'll watch this Pixar. And I was very impressed with it. Like, I'm like, wow, this is a great film. I wish I would have seen it on the big screen. It's so gorgeous. Yeah, that one technically is really amazing. Yeah, I was talking to that one. I was with someone that had kids. They wanted to see it. I'm like, well, all right, sure. Why not? And- I think of all animation studios, I probably like Pixar best. I also have never been as enthralled with them as either of you or most people. 
I had a friend who wanted to see Toy Story. I was iffy, but hey, advancements in computer tech. Saw it once in theaters. Stuart wanted to see A Bug's Life, and it had Dennis Leary in it. <laughs> that got you to the theater. <laughs> I liked Dave Foley back then, too. He was on news radio, so I saw that once in theaters. And then I went downhill, skipped Toy Story 2, saw Monsters, Inc. on video, saw Finding Nemo in theaters, liked it, saw Incredibles in theaters, got halfway through Cars, and I just stopped. I hit stop in the middle of Cars, was done, never saw Ratatouille, Wally, cried during Up's beginning, and then didn't care for the rest of it, didn't see Toy Story 3, Cars 2, Brave, Monsters University, Good Dinosaur, Finding Dory, Cars 3, Coco, none of them I... Only saw Inside Out. And Incredibles and Incredibles 2. Yes, Incredibles and Incredibles 2, because we reviewed those. So you're saying you're the newbie. You are pretty against the hype of Incredibles. Your review, as I recall, is that why are people overpraising this film? Yeah, it's a good film, but it's not a great film, and it's not a classic. It's a pretty rote story that ripped off Marvel. But it was fun. I gave it a green arrow. It's the best Fantastic Four film out there. So far, yeah. So far, I, I don't... Yeah, okay. They made one really good film in your mind, and that was Finding Nemo. Yeah. See, in Finding Nemo, that's like a middle tier for me. I When this film came out, look, this was 95, just started college, I was going to school in the morning, working in the afternoon, and then either going to band practice, playing hockey at night. I didn't have time for no kids' animated film. I don't even remember hearing about this in 95. But with Bugs Life, I was babysitting my brothers, much younger. They're 11, 13 years younger than me. And my mom's like, hey, can you take them to this movie? Sure. And yeah, up until Cars, I had seen every... Pixar film in theaters, skipped Cars, because it just didn't look appealing. I've gone back and watched it, still don't really like it, but after that, yeah, I w was back in theaters until, again, they started getting real sequel heavy. Monsters University, and Finding Dory, and The Good Dinosaur I never bothered seeing. Inside Out was great. I just feel like that consistency has been lost the last few years. I know there are some people that are drawn to the Toy Story series because of nostalgia for toys and for childhood. But for me, as someone that never collected that many action figures, as someone that has no children, what I've always responded to about this entry in the Pixar canon is its preoccupation with transience. The way that time can change social order and ergo threaten to undermine one's self-worth. It's a universal theme and it's an adult theme, but it's one you're never too young to learn. And that was the thing that really struck me when I saw it. I was out of college. I was a film school snob. I did not go to see most commercial filmmaking. I did happen to be going with a child. It was a family event that came out around Thanksgiving. I was 22, and I went wanting to see the technical innovation and came away feeling like, wow, they really captured something about the human experience. In this first film? Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you, Stuart. We'll talk about it with this one. This wasn't where I started, but when I did see Toy Story 2, talk about that next week, but I'm a collector as well, so there are things that I think are neat where they incorporate that, especially Toy Story 3, we'll get there, but that they're really touching on some very human emotions with these toys. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this first film is very much about being replaced by someone better. And then, yeah, with each movie, it becomes another threat to one's existence. And that's something, I mean, we live in those times more and more. Like maybe back in the 50s, people felt like I have one wife, one job, everything follows a path. But we live in a time where, yeah, replaceable parts. Yeah, it's the gig economy. You got to hustle. And, and maybe toys are the best way of talking about that. 
But I was very impressed. Uh, question for you guys. We've talked about Pixar, and they're certainly the ones that made computer-generated animation a viable art form for feature films. Where do you stand in comparing it to Celdron? If you had to watch an animated film, do you have a preference between old-fashioned or computer? I've always been into art and drawing comics and all that kind of stuff. Stop motion, cell animation, computers... I'm open to all of it. For me, it's really the style. And I said this with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I felt like they finally took a CGI animated feature and gave it its own style. Because I feel like everything is kind of built off of this Pixar house style. It was so neat to finally see something so different done with computers. So I'm open to anything. I do like different styles. And does that style appeal to me? Does it seem more than just a bunch of people in South Korea that had to slave away to get it done? I want to see that sense of style and really having it fit the story they're trying to tell. I'm open for either so long as it's visually interesting. And I don't believe that the disconnect is that big. I mean, before Toy Story, I remember seeing Beauty and the Beast and that big dance scene had computer-generated backdrops. Yeah, that was a big deal. Yeah, they made a huge deal out of that. But it looked cel-shaded. I mean, it fit. It didn't feel like when we're watching those Pokemon movies and they just <laughs> drop a CG creature in the middle of it that looks otherworldly compared to the cel-drawn animation. I think that computers had been aiding cel-drawn animation for years. And I think that I'm drawn to the computer animation more because you can just simply add things like lighting effects, shadow, texture, and the computer can render it. And as computers get better, the rendering of it gets more detailed. But there's no reason you couldn't do that on cell shading. And I do find it sad when departments completely shut down their cell shading studios because they think that the only money is in chasing Pixar. That said, a lot of the cell shaded animation I watched today is on television. And it's really cheap looking because they just do cheap out, they use Adobe software, they over-tween it. Yeah, even that is aided by computers now, like The Simpsons. They've gone with a lot of digital effects in that now, and I guess it helps them produce it faster. I mean, you go back to South Park, where they try to make it look like a crappy stop-motion construction paper cutout thing, but it's all computers, and they can do it really fast to get it out and, you know, have it timely and do a whole episode in a week. I remember them talking when they went to computer, it actually was harder for computers to render things that looked like construction paper because that was the opposite of what the programs were built to do. But I'll go with either. What I care about is, again, something that's visually grabbing. If you're going to use an animated medium, do it for a reason. I never understood why in this day of special effects, The Incredibles couldn't have been live action. But as long as there's a reason for it and a good story... I'm down. It's hard to separate my feelings about computer animation and Pixar because they kind of have the monopoly. I mean, I was trying to think of what the state was pre-Pixar, and the first thing I thought of was Tron, which, you know, had that light cycle sequence. Which inspired John Lasseter. <laughs> like, you would not have Pixar without Tron, according to him. Oh, interesting. I know he was a Walt Disney animator. Did he work on it? He didn't work on it, but he knew people and he was seeing the stuff and just blown away like what they were doing. He saw the light cycle sequence and it just blew him away. And he's like, wow, we got to do something with these computers. The next thing I went to was music videos, specifically Dire Straits, Money for Nothing. Yes. That blocky, <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> it, you know, it embraced what it was like to play video games. I assumed that computer graphics would only be able to emulate and animate what I was already playing at the the arcade and so it played into that throughout the 80s 
Don't forget young Sherlock Holmes. Oh, that stained glass creature? That was awful. It was when we did Willow that I learned all about how Lucasfilm had started pioneering computer-generated effects, and young Sherlock Holmes was the first truly computer-generated interaction with humans. And Pixar did come out of Lucasfilm. That was once upon a time part of Lucas's empire. Yeah, that stunned me. I did a little bit of digging to see where all these guys came from. I knew the connection to Steve Jobs and Apple, but that didn't transpire until 1986. They were putting out animated shorts before then under the banner of Lucasfilm. Yeah, and Lucas knew the progress wasn't going the way it needed to. Computers just weren't powerful enough. And they actually knew that they wouldn't have the computer power to make a movie for probably a decade. And Lucas he'd gotten divorced the star wars money wasn't coming in anymore he made howard the duck so he (laughs) sold pixar because he needed some money the way jobs ran pixar is basically like oh that's research and development like yeah they're doing these little short computer animated things i'll throw money just to see where it goes and i believe it was 1988 lasseter asked Jobs for some money. He's like, hey, we're trying to do really good-looking humans with computers. And he did a short, about a five-minute short, called Tin Toy, which was about a little toy that was alive and a baby and their little interaction. And that won the Oscar for best short animated film. And and Steve Jobs is like, yeah, here's $300,000 to go work on that little thing. But that caught Disney's eye when this computer graphic cartoon won the Oscar. You know, and I watched it. I had heard that if you want to see the germ of where Toy Story began, you go to Tin Toy, and it just was the case of computers being able to replicate the plasticity of surfaces of toys. That Tin Toy looks good. That baby is worse than Allie McBeal's opening baby. (laughs) Yeah, flesh. The flesh. What I will say about that tin toy, because that baby looks awful, you see the roots of Pixar there. Like, there's a nice little relatable human emotion in there because it's all about this toy feels rejected because the baby decides to play with the box. I got kids. Sometimes they love the box more than the toy that comes in the box. And I'm like, even early on, when they were trying to do groundbreaking effects, they were still keeping that human element in there. You know, that actually kind of alarmed me because nobody was supervising this baby and it was putting its head in a bag. And I'm like, just saw the potential for suffocation. I was like, help that baby. But I knew they couldn't animate an adult. That was probably why there was no adult in the room. They just didn't have that capability of doing the humans. And I think they were wise to stick with things that weren't human for a long period of time. You know, when you look at the early films, toys, bugs, monsters. Yeah, it wasn't really until Incredibles where they did humans full out. My memory of this was that I loved the toys and the humans were creepy. And rewatching it- Your memory is correct. (laughs) Yeah, that's the case. And I didn't understand again. Yeah, if you're going to make a movie about a rat, go ahead and computer animate it. If you're going to make a movie about four human superheroes, I just didn't understand the use of the medium for that. But you mentioned Disney, Jacob. When this came out and I saw it in theaters- I thought this was a Disney picture. First of all, Disney was all over the trailers. Walt Disney Pictures brings you and all of that. They marketed it as a Disney film. And also, Disney was the only name in animation. They'd had a resurgence in the 90s with Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast started with Little Mermaid. And this is distributed by Disney. And so I really didn't realize what Pixar was when this came out. I just thought this was a new type of Disney film. I was bracing myself for the musical numbers, especially when I heard Randy Newman wrote the songs. I was just gritting my teeth. 
Yeah, Disney wanted this to be a musical. And the thing is, I always thought Pixar was Disney. And then there was a big story. Oh, Disney's bought Pixar. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah, they were a distributor. They had a three-picture deal. Then it went to a five-picture deal. But Pixar would have to produce it all. And then Disney would put it out in theaters and put their castle at the beginning of it. Yeah, Pixar was too small. I mean, nobody had put out a computer-generated animated feature before Toy Story. And they were just too small-staffed. I think they had like 28 full-time animators on this film. Film, which is ridiculous compared to like 600, 700 that worked on Lion King around the same time. I mean, they didn't have nearly the manpower to pull it off. I've heard some of the animators in the bonus features, they compare themselves to the chutzpah that launched the moon landing. Like they were young and naive enough to try something that everyone else thought was impossible. And lo and behold, it did manage to work. They were commissioned to make a tin toy sequel. It was actually literally supposed to be the wind-up toy from that 88 Oscar-winning short. It was going to be that wind-up toy, he gets lost, meets a ventriloquist dummy, and they go and try to find his home, and then it just kind of morphed from there. They're like, ah, this tin toy, he's not very animated, he can't do a lot, let's make it about the dummy. And I think you can see Woody in that ventriloquist dummy if you look at the production shots that they started doing. Not to mention tin toys, I mean, that's really going back a hundred years. I mean, even our parents didn't play with that, so... Yeah, I mean, they did have rules for the toys they wanted in the film. They got to be sellers over at least two generations because they wanted it to feel timeless. But yeah, I think a tin toy makes it feel too old. Definitely. So wisely, I think Disney pushed them to be as modern as possible. And they wanted to make a 1950s retro thing, kind of like an Iron Giant. But they wound up with something that I think really connected with audiences in 1995 and became a surprise hit. I mean, I think bigger than what Disney even anticipated, what anyone anticipated. They got lucky with the voice actors. Oh, I couldn't believe this story when I was listening to the commentary. Yeah, Tom Hanks was still like working on Philadelphia. Like that was just coming out when he got involved with this film. This thing took years. Tim Allen, Home Improvement had just started and he wasn't a sure thing yet. And I'd missed funny Tom Hanks. I loved the Tom Hanks of the 80s, Money Pit and Splash and Bosom Buddies. And that Tom Hanks had pretty much disappeared with Philadelphia. Again, Forrest Gump and Apollo 13 came out while he was still working on Toy Story. Part of the reason I agreed to see this with my friend was because it had Tom Hanks being big Tom Hanks, 80s Tom Hanks. And I remember at the time reading an interview, he did not want to do a cartoon. He was trying to be a more serious actor. He was blown away. I guess they took some Turner and Hooch footage and took some audio (laughs) from it and animated it and sent it to him. And he saw how well it worked. And then he wanted to be a part of it. But it really was the fact that I could see Tom Hanks being funny again that brought me to theaters. And you mentioned Tim Allen. He was not their first, second, or third choice. Home Improvement had just started on television, and it took a few years for it to really roll into being a major, major ratings hit. They were going after Billy Crystal. And Billy Crystal's like, nah, who wants to do this silly thing? Then he saw what that silly thing ended up becoming. And he's like, can you put me one of your films? And he'd show up in those Monster Inc. ones. But they wanted Jim Carrey. He was too expensive. And yeah, they finally had to go to Tim Allen. And Tim Allen, he was at the start of his career here. I knew who he was, but I wasn't really watching his show. But then he had like this big rise This helped with it, but the Santa Claus and a number of other movies made him a star. And then he kind of lost it again. And now he's struggling to keep his show on television. 
I think the difference is when they started this movie in 1991, Tom Hanks was a guy that had done big and Turner and Hooch and then kind of disappeared into flops. And Tim Allen was on a show that was starting to get big. They were equals. But by the time this came out in 1995, Tom Hanks has two Oscars and is a major, major star. And Tim Allen is in a hit TV show at a time when there is a real separation between being a star in television and being a star at the movie. It was clear Tom Hanks was the one they pushed forward. It was Tom Hanks in huge letters, Tim Allen when they couldn't get Tom Hanks to do the publicity. But yeah, that Tom Hanks would voice a cartoon. Nowadays, it's hip. Everybody wants to voice a cartoon. But back then, voicing a cartoon was a rarity. I mean, yes, Robin Williams did Aladdin, but that was kind of a big deal. I've talked about my relative who's a voice actor. He was Leonardo on that original Turtles cartoon. This was his bane when celebrities got involved in the game because he's like, this is a craft and I have honed this craft over years. And now these celebrities just come in and take my jobs just because they have a recognizable name. But that's the way it goes. People want a name they recognize before they go to the movies. But you know what I respect about Pixar is that they didn't go after this in future movies. They didn't just say, hey, let's go get all the big, big stars. I mean, keep in mind, Incredibles was Holly Hunter and Craig T. Nelson. They were not (laughs) A-list in 2004, or maybe ever, frankly. (laughs) So among their many quality control elements, they do try to match the voice with the character. And however big the star is, is secondary. And that was a big thing for them in Toy Story, like... Don Rickles, that's the only person they wanted for Mr. Potato Head. (laughs) That was the only time his phone rang in the 90s, I'm sure. It was like, we want Don Rickles. Who? (laughs) And Jim Varney, you might know him as Ernest P. Worrell, but Jim Varney, they actually redid Slinky Dog's design to kind of just match his performance better. So they really were careful with the voice actors. They would create designs to match the actor and what you see on screen. And what I know is they have a stable of voice actors who are people who weren't necessarily voiceover artists before, but like John Ratzenberger, I think, has been in every single one. Yeah, John Ratzenberger, they love. Apparently, he is hilarious. They said he would do every line 10 times. It would be different every time. Great improv comedian. And like, it was hard to pick what lines of his to use. Who would have thought? But when I got his (laughs) autograph on my Star Wars stuff, it was Star Wars, Cheers, and Pixar were all the things he had in front of him. Well, let's find out what all of these actors did in Toy Story. Arnie, give us the plot. Andy Davis is a typical boy living with his single mother and little sister Molly, and they're preparing to move to a new house. But when Andy leaves his room, his toys come to life and each have a mind and personality of their own. But anytime a human comes near, they go limp to hide their sentience. The toys include a Mr. Potato Head, a Slinky Dog, a T-Rex, Army Men, and more, all voiced by celebrities. But the lead toy, Andy's favorite, is a talking cowboy doll named Woody, voiced by Tom Hanks. For Andy's eighth birthday, however, his tastes change away from that old West Sheriff to the hottest new toy, Buzz Lightyear, Space Ranger, voiced by Tim Allen. All the toys are in awe of Buzz's light-up arms and wings, but Woody is jealous as he's been knocked to the ground and Buzz is Andy's new favorite. For his part, Buzz doesn't even realize he's a toy. He thinks he's a real space ranger crashed on a strange planet and trying to get home. Woody tries to sabotage Buzz by tricking him into falling behind Andy's desk, but... Buzz falls out the window, and all the other toys turn on Woody, believing it to be attempted murder. Woody and Buzz go through a number of adventures as Woody tries to help Buzz get back to the house, and during these, Buzz does come to realize he is an action figure made in Taiwan. 
The two end up becoming friends, and through teamwork, they reunite with Andy just in time as his mother's car was driving away to the new house, and the toys welcome Woody back, and Buzz and Woody are friends at last as credits roll. I'll never forget that sinking feeling in my heart when I'm in the theater, again, just in film school, you know, I probably had just watched a bunch of Bergman films. I see the magic castle with fireworks and then a <laughs> lamp hopping around. I'm like, what have I done to myself? I felt very uncool. But that lamp, that is actually Pixar's mascot. It goes back to one of their earliest shorts, Luxo Jr. I was just chagrined because I was 21 years old and seeing a Disney cartoon in theaters. But that feeling goes away relatively quickly. I do feel like I get caught up into the world. We pan down from the blue sky wallpaper into a spaghetti Western, I think. Oh, yeah. They, they definitely wanted to tap into that Western vibe. And yeah, they do a, well, kind of a full on Western until you get some sci-fi elements coming in. I mean, but it, this feels very real. Like my He-Mans would fight my G.I. Joes would fight my Star Wars. It was all one big universe to me. I remember that. I remember taking all my figures and changing their names so they could be minions of my Inhumanoids and whatever else, because I had so many damn Star Wars figures, because I collected them the longest, that every toy I got into after that, the Star Wars figures had to hang out with. I even remember I had a talking Michael Knight and Kit Car, and the Emperor became Devlin, because he was an old man. So, yeah, this feels very real to me, you know, and it takes me back. Playing with toys, it's... Hard to believe seeing them out of boxes and being slapped around. <laughs> How old is Andy? I know it's his birthday, but I didn't get an age. Do they say that in the film? Because I didn't catch that. They say he got Woody when he was in kindergarten, so like five. I went back and I scrubbed this movie. Every scene with the birthday party, every scene at Pizza Planet, and I don't think the movie says. Online, I read it was eight and they said that that was revealed at Pizza Planet, but I didn't see that at all. And I did find a press release when the movie came out saying Andy was six, but I don't know if they meant six turning seven or five turning six on this birthday. I don't know. It's a little up in the air. It's vague. But I think we can say six or eight. It is a little strange for a kid in 1995 to have his favorite toy be a cowboy. I mean, that is... Not a genre I ever remember embracing. There are so many fan theories about the Toy Story universe. And like, this is a toy that his dad, who he doesn't have a dad in this film. He's never going to have a dad. Maybe this is a toy of his dad's that, yeah, has sentimental value. Who knows? Different kids were into different things that I never understood. I was always because of Star Wars, more into the sci-fi action realm. But I remember seeing kids who wanted to play cowboys and Indians back... Now, this was the 70s, not the 90s. I don't know if it was politically correct to play cowboys and Indians in the 90s. But here it's cowboys and robbers, so it skirts that line. Yeah, it, it seems like this is a leftover from when they wanted to have all of this set in Eisenhower suburbia 1950s. In the 1950s, kids wanted to be uh, Roy Rogers. They did like Lone Ranger. They did like Cowboys. And then that changed with the space race. As a modern equivalent, I could never remember ever being a cowboy for Halloween or even you, Arnie, having anything to do with that genre. Yeah, but I am anti-Western just in general and always have. <laughs> Have been I was born that way but you know I'm thinking I had nieces and nephews who were eight in the 90s not only did none of them have cowboys I mean what they had was mutant ninja turtles that then turned into Pokemon but mostly 
They had video games. They did not have toys. And again, they wanted this to feel timeless. If they were playing with Ninja Turtles or whatever the hip toy in 95 was, it would feel dated. I, I, and I think that would be a complaint. This feels so 90s. And thematically, if you are a donor, you could hear our thoughts on Lethal Weapon, but that buddy cop film, and you got to have opposites. You got the family man and the single suicidal cop, and how do they play off each other? Yeah, that old-fashioned cowboy, and then later on, we're going to have the new space toy. It just works thematically. Yeah, we'll get into the movie once they pair up. All of my concerns go away, but in reflecting on this movie, another thing that's kind of weird, Bo Peep? It took me a second to realize I don't think that's Andy's toy. No, if you pay close attention, just like in Big with Tom Hanks and his little sister, Molly shares a room with Andy. Maybe that's why they're moving. They need a bigger house so they can get their own rooms. But they do share a room. Some of these toys are Molly's, and Bo Peep is one of them. I think the Fisher-Price toys, too. I love seeing the little wooden Fisher-Price people. But no eight-year-old is playing with those and probably no six-year-olds either. That's much more up the toddler's alley. Yeah, and she ends up being the jailer that, you know, they've turned Mr. Potato Head and this guy robbing the bank, the bank being the piggy bank. They do a great job of introducing all the characters in this one playful scenario. And then, yeah, the bad guy's thrown in the crib with Molly. It kind of shows that Andy loves his sister, but there's a big age disparity. They can't really play together. She's more interested in eating the small pieces than she would be his playmate. And the voices here, yeah, like we mentioned, Don Rickles, Jim Varney, the one that shocks me. It's just because I've learned a lot about this person in real life. Arlie Army in a kid's cartoon voicing an army man. If you're going to have an army sergeant, yeah, why not go with him? That's all he does, right? (laughs) It's called typecasting, yes. It is, and he was military, but he was just a foul, foul man in real life, and I just can't imagine. So was Tim Allen, though. I mean... He had a lot of jokes about cocaine when he was doing stand-up before Home Improvement. That's because he was doing cocaine before Home Improvement. I know! (laughs) And I don't think Brandy Newman was itching to make his baby songs record either. This was a strange choice as well, to do all the music. I don't like Randy Newman. It's specifically his voice. I know other people have done his songs and he does scores. I just don't like it. I like short people and I love LA. I like those songs, but I do not like his voice in this film. I am ambivalent to him. I remember I Love L.A. and liking that song in the 80s. But really, my biggest association with Randy Newman is the movie Major League, where they took a song from his from the 70s and they used that as the opening credits. But yeah, here, I was just happy that it was a musical sequence and that it wasn't the characters singing, you know? Which Disney wanted and Pixar's like, nope, we're not going to do that. Yeah, if they had done that, I would have turned on this film when I saw it originally. I wouldn't have. I mean, I liked Little Mermaid for those songs. Beauty and the Beast for those songs. Aladdin, the songs work. Usually Disney's pretty good at it. They actually revived the musical. I agree, like if it were a live action movie, that's a tough sell when people break into song and dance. Well, that's what they're doing now. They're turning all their cartoons into live action films with the same songs. But I do think that, yeah, this was the musical genre in the 90s, and they could have done that. They could have made that work, but not with Randy Newman. I know Steve Jobs was holding up for Bob Dylan. Which yes, is- I read that. That's crazy to think that Bob Dylan could have been doing these songs. It's kind of a variation on the same thing, though, like a sad sack songwriter. What they were going after, I heard them talk about it, and it makes sense in this context. Their favorite scores that they were thinking about had been when pop stars just put themselves into the soundtrack, like Cat Stevens, 
All the stuff he does with Harold and Maude, if you know that movie. Yep. Simon and Garfunkel, the way that The Graduate mm, is just yeah. their sound, wall to wall. They wanted somebody to do that for their Toy Story. And I guess it worked. I don't personally like Randy Newman's music, but I do feel like his sad sack act does kind of work for this everyday story. It's fine is the best I can give it. You know, I'm I'm not a fan of it. It's not on my iPhone for rotation. It never comes up when I'm listening to the 90s online, and I'm just fine with that. I write the same damn song. I mean, that's my problem. It's like, you hear one, this is short people all over again. I mean, I just feel like all <laughs> yes. his songs are interchangeable. In one of the few Family Guy jokes I like, they do do an old Randy Newman thing where it's just him looking around and singing about whatever he sees. And it's the same cadence as this Friend and Me song. And that's what I think of Randy Newman. Yeah, agreed. It works in context, but it didn't have to be that way. I do wonder what this movie could have been if they shaped it as a musical or picked a different artist to color the songs. I'm glad they didn't, though, because to my knowledge, they haven't done a musical. I'm less inclined in musicals. I didn't care for Beauty and the Beast. It's fine. I didn't care for Little Mermaid. It's fine. I liked Aladdin, but that was because of Robin Williams. The rest of it was fine. I just don't like singing cartoons. I feel like it plays better the younger you are. Do you not like to be young? Do you not want to regress? I don't want to be infantile, no. Okay. Yeah, I don't associate it with being infantile. My thing with musicals is that's where you get where the characters are emotionally, usually in musicals, is they're going to sing a song about how they feel. And having seen these Toy Story films, I just love how Pixar is going to convey emotion. It's deeper and more meaningful. And if they were singing, it would feel more childish. As an adult, I'm glad they didn't go that route because I think they went with the more sophisticated method of portraying emotion. What's interesting about You Got a Friend and Me is at the start of this, it looks like it's characterizing the way Woody feels about Andy and probably vice versa. They're inseparable. You know, we see them leaping on recliners, dressing up together, you know, inseparable, love one another. But it actually becomes the story of Woody and Buzz. As we get into the movie, it's less about Andy and more about Woody making peace with this thing forced upon him that destroys his social order. What I always associate about Toy Story movies is how someone that feels like they're on top can be thrust to the bottom. If you look at this, to a toy, its owner is God. And so... Andy being a mythical force who bestows favor upon his subjects works for me. And as I've already said, I don't think they did the humans very well here. The mouths especially creep me out. And so the less that they have the humans in the story, the better I think it works for the level of animation they can do here. Andy looks awful. All of them look awful. That dog's going to look the worst. Oh, But what's interesting about this first Toy Story film... Yes, it's about toys. That's interesting on its own. Like, there's going to be a birthday, and they're all worried. Oh, no, is he going to get a toy they like better than us? And Woody's going to hold, like, a, a conference meeting. Like, this is their job to entertain Andy and Molly. And so let's have a staff meeting. And so it's interesting on that level, just like, oh, if toys were alive, how would they interact? But then they're going to go deeper and get more at human truths and human emotions. But I like that it works on both levels. As a kid, yeah, oh, look at these toys. Like, walk around. This is neat. And how they would interact and how they would observe 
of the world. Yeah, they're all really neurotic, frankly. I mean, they're various versions of the same thing. Ham is kind of the know-it-all. Rex is the neurotic. Uh, Mr. Potato Head's the cynic. I love that they did a neurotic T-Rex because they added that character after Jurassic Park became a big deal and became such a touchstone for CG animation with, with parts of those dinosaurs. And so, yeah, they're like, let's have a T-Rex in there, but yeah, make him super neurotic. I love Wallace Shawn in this film. Yes. Just, he's pretty goofy whatever he plays, but every voice actor here, I'm smiling. In fact, Marjorie walked in while I was watching this and was just like, you're smiling. Why are you sitting there just smiling? Because it's entertaining to watch these people play off each other in their various forms. And I lose the voices, even though they're very iconic voices, into their characters. I forget I'm hearing Jim Varney and John Ratzenberger, and I hear Slinky Dog and ham the pig and to me the humor it just has a classical feel almost vaudevillian a timeless type of humor you know a few years later we get shrek and it's all about references and pop culture and look this is going to reference stuff there are star wars references throughout this but they're never the punchline the punchlines are the performances are the lines and just listening to these characters interact it's fun to listen to them my sense is this would be a really messed up toy room were it not for woody the sheriff keeps the peace, like literally in Westerns. And it's true in this frontier town as well that we're calling Andy's toy chest. They all have these problems. Slinky Dog is kind of the suck up, but you get the sense from everyone that Woody is the one that they pay attention to. He calls the meeting. His face is on the posters, the bed sheets. That's how you know you're the top toy. You know you're the top toy if you have the bed sheet, which again, for kids, that is pretty real. Like I remember having the He-Man sheet and then the Star Wars sheet. Whatever your favorite toy is that year, that's the sheet you get. Oh, absolutely. My question is, at what point does the sentience of a toy stop making sense? Don't even go there, Arnie. That is a losing game if you try to really dissect living toys. Well, I'm just thinking, okay, it makes sense to me if this is a fantasy land. If this is Andy's fantasy mind that his toys do stuff when he's not around or what have you, then... It makes sense that all these action figures would do stuff. I could have that imagining as a child. I don't think I'd ever imagine my speak and spell getting in on the action, though. <laughs> yeah, we'll see some, like, toy blocks. Can those move around? Do they think? Again, I don't try to get too deep into it because it's about toys coming to life, and it's not really about the logistics of that. It also makes me wonder, do toys have a soul when they're mass-produced? I mean, there's got to be hundreds of thousands of Woodies and Buzzes. I think we're going to explore those ideas in future installments. Yeah, that's definitely, I mean, in this installment, I definitely feel like, again, existential is the first word I would use to describe these movies. It's a way to introduce the concept to the youngest members of the audience. And the irony is... Tom Hanks' Woody is the one calming everyone. Don't worry. Yes, they are moving soon, and you need to get a moving buddy. And yes, that means they moved Andy's birthday party up a week. But don't worry. Nobody is going to get replaced. No one is going to be left behind. And of course, he's going to be the one to get hit hardest on what gets brought to the birthday party. Yeah, you get this great sequence. They send the army men out there to go do recon and spy and talk to him on the walkie-talkie. And I love, like, who wants bed sheets? We just talked about it. If they had a toy on it, I want those bed sheets. But yeah, this is fun. They're nervous. They're spying on them. And just the little details, like the way the toy soldiers move around. I had so many green soldiers 
characters like that. And those gun barrels would always bend like they're depicted here. The stands would always snap. You'd step on them and that you got to throw that one away. He's never standing up again. The detail that just impressed the hell out of me is the army men are hiding in a plant. The plant still has the tag that tells you the type of plants and the price on it. Nobody would really think about that, but they do think about that stuff because if you look at those army men, you'll see, again, if you had those along the seam where those molds were, you always had extra plastic just hanging out. It drove me crazy. I would take like knives and try to shave them down on my toys. They add those to the toy and they were very aware of that when they're coming up with these character designs. We want these to look like the toys people own. I would use the word fetish. There seems to be an obsession with getting surface right. We want this computer technology to get the sheen, all the little plastic doodads. Yeah, they're not going to miss any of those details. That is the toy story. On a certain level, that is the story they're most excited to tell. I do feel like this first one is a proof of concept. Can we pull this off? And again, that's why they went with toys, because they knew they could do good-looking plastic or wood surfaces as opposed to human flesh. But you mentioned stepping on the army guy. I felt like that was a bold choice for what I was considering a kid's cartoon, that you would show a broken soldier who's like, leave me, he's ready to be left to die, but Arlie Ermey's commander leaves no soldier behind, so they take the crippled army man and drag him off. I mean, I thought that was a bit more sophisticated than I had expected from a cartoon about toys. Keep in mind, Jeffrey Katzenberg is working at Disney at this point. You and I have just reviewed Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He was a big proponent for making this movie as appealing to teenagers and as adults as possible. So much so that my understanding is an early cut of the film went too far. I'll talk about it when we get to the scene, but it seems to be a theme with Pixar if you read about the production of other films, and it will definitely come up in Toy Story 2, where if something isn't working, they'll redo it, even though it's very expensive and they're on very tight deadlines because this stuff takes so long. But yeah, Katzenberg wanted to make sure they were not making a movie for 10-year-olds and under. But it was G-rated, and that's a hard sell for me at 21. I paid no attention to this. I don't even remember it coming out. I would have had no desire in 95 to see it. Yeah, I would say don't worry about that. I think Pixar is not pandering. They are not trying to only speak to the youngest members of the crowd. Right, but I'm saying what I thought in 95. Nobody knew who Pixar was. Oh, sure. But clearly, at this point, this is a war movie joke. Leave me behind, no one gets left behind is something you'd expect to see in any army movie from the 1950s or 60s. And they're making references and jokes to things that only an adult would understand. You would hope, kids, there's no way they're watching John Wayne films. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yes, Buzz Lightyear comes in, a toy that feels far more realistic as far as kids of the 90s. He's got television commercials, and he's got nice packaging, window boxes. And the way they came up with this design, again, all the people working on this with Pixar, they were all big toy people. They're all collectors. And so they're like, what is your wish list? If you're a kid, what would you want in a toy? Oh, it glows in the dark, and it's got a laser, and it could talk, and it's got wings. And like, yeah, they just took all these ideas, and they wanted to put it in one ultimate toy that like every kid would want. And a lot of the script writers worked on this. Joss Whedon was one of them. I noticed that. Yeah. We know him from Buffy and certainly the early Avengers movies. Yeah, this is really what kickstarted Joss Whedon's career again. Keep in mind, he'd written the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie that did not do well. He'd been doing script rewrites and polishes around Hollywood, but this is what gave him the clout to go do Buffy the TV series. Mm. So it wasn't even on the air yet. 
No, that wouldn't come out until 97, and that's the same year his script for Alien Resurrection got released as a movie, too. They say his biggest contribution to this movie was the fact that he was the one that came up with the idea that Buzz did not know he was a toy. Which is such a pivotal idea to the script. Again, existential idea. Like, here is someone whose whole sense of being, the reason why he can strut around and all of that is he's the most important thing in the universe. And that is going to be completely stripped from him. That's such a major part of the story. And my memory is always kind of not liking Buzz because, yeah, he was cocky and overconfident and kind of just a doofus. Watching it this time, I really feel bad for him, which is crazy. I feel bad for a toy thinking he's a real person instead of a toy. But I do like there's something very human about that. I think about like maybe someone who's sheltered, you know, a homeschool kid and they go out into the real world. And what is that like to just have this whole worldview where you lived in this bubble just pop and told what you thought was reality maybe isn't reality. Like it is a really neat concept to explore. I imagine we've all experienced it. I mean, I don't think there's a person on Earth that didn't have a concept about how things worked and then went out there and found out, oh, there's actually a whole different apparatus and I don't play a very big part in moving those gears. I just think it's universal. And how do you prepare a kid for that? What a great introduction. I mean, in in the guise of funny entertainment and what ends up being the next 10 minutes of bickering between a cowboy and a spaceman, they're really preparing you for life. And this is where Tom Hanks gets to be big, frustrated Tom Hanks like we saw in The Burbs and Turner and Hooch and Dragnet, The Money Pit. It's just the type of performance he'd give time and time again in the 80s. And looking again at human behavior, though, the way I see Woody this time, I have a very different opinion watching this film now than I did 10 years ago or something. But you know the term nice guy? Like, oh, I'm such a nice guy and he's trying to get with the girl and I'm going to wine and dine you and treat you perfect. And the girl's like, no, I'm not into you. Well, you're just a jerk and they turn into very unnice guys all of a sudden i do feel like woody encapsulates that i'm in charge everyone loves me and then the second he gets challenged and buzz has no malice towards him buzz has been living in his own world and thinks his own things and now woody's like whole world is crashing and he turns into a total jerk we were looking up to him at the beginning and now yeah to see this come out and the jealousy and everything it's a shock to me I feel for Woody in this moment because it's so painful to realize I was the most popular one and now I'm nothing. This is the guy and he is cooler than me. I mean, if I were honest with myself, why wouldn't I be just as enamored with him as every other toy, as Andy should be? I get it and you have to get it. Otherwise, I do think you would hate Woody for what he does. It's a trope of a story, though. I mean, how many times do we see this in office comedies where there's a new employee or teen shows where there's a new kid in school you know i think this is a universal feeling that if you've gone to kindergarten if you've ever stepped out of your house and joined any kind of social circle classroom what have you this is something that can be related to and i never find woody to be a joke it helps though that it's cast with tom hanks watching it this time i am looking at him a little bit more asconce I've always liked Woody because Tom Hanks is the perennial nice guy. I mean, I follow him on Twitter. He finds gloves and wallets and just posts them and is like, hey, somebody lost the glove. How can I return it to you? This is how Tom Hanks spends his time. He is just the nicest guy on earth. And so that really helps me to not judge him harshly in this role. Or at least he presents himself that way. I mean, again, I don't know if I would believe social media posts as proof of character, but I get what you're saying. His public persona is that he's the nicest guy in Hollywood. 
And Tim Allen is the opposite. It is more like Buzz, and I don't like Tim Allen. I don't like Home Improvement or, yeah, the Santa Claus trilogy or most of the stuff he's done, but I did feel a lot of sympathy for Buzz this time because he is so hated by Woody, but it's not his fault. And these toys love Buzz because he's the new thing and he's exciting and he's got wings and lights, and that's not his fault that people like him. And it's not like he's competing for it. He's not trying to be the better toy because in his mind, he's not even a toy. I mean, that's what hurts Woody most is that it comes effortlessly. This guy, through no attempt of his own, is just suddenly great, and he doesn't even want Andy's love. I'm with Jacob. The first time I saw it, I was not a Tim Allen fan, so I was anti-Buzz. I did come around. Home Improvement was a show that I didn't watch first run, but I saw it on syndication. Turned out I actually kind of liked it, and Tim Allen liked that first Santa Claus movie, and I like some of his other stuff. Galaxy Quest is perhaps my favorite role of his. Galaxy Quest is good, yes. Which I think is kind of a spin-off of this. He's yes. kind of playing a Shatner-esque Buzz Lightyear. Yeah, that was just Toy Story live action in some <laughs> manner. But I hear what you're saying. Yeah, we can have sympathy for Tim Allen, despite the fact that we kind of hate him in these early scenes. And it, it is important to dislike him that we start there and bond with him later. It did go too far. I mean, I talked about an earlier cut that did not go well. At Katzenberg's suggestion, they kept making Woody more and more spiteful to the point that what they screened, I think about a year before the movie came out, was just out and out rejected by Disney. Yeah, it is not an accident when Woody knocks Buzz out the window in the original scripting. He pushes him out that window. It is straight up murder. I've seen it in animatic form where they didn't do the CGI, but they had the voice actors and the storyboards and they realized, oh, this is too far. He can't be this spiteful. He could have some kind of plan where he's going to get him off the bed because that is the prime real estate in Andy's room. If you're on the bed, you're the favorite toy. He wants to get him off of there and through some antics, Buzz ends up out the window. It's a very Hollywood notion of success, right? Like, who's sleeping with Andy? Like, <laughs> the big guy is the one. And, and all the more uncomfortable because of where director John Lasseter yes. got in trouble with his Me Too shenanigans. But there is some truth to it. Yes. Who's in the bed with Andy is a way of measuring success in life. And yet I found it very amusing that the plot was fall behind the desk because how many toys did I lose forever as a child only to find behind some piece of furniture or under something. It would be very easy to be out of sight, out of mind. Your new favorite toy is gone. And depending on your age, by eight, I probably would be over it. But six or four, I might have cried about it and then gotten over it and gone to a different favorite toy until that one was found again. So I like the toyeticness of, hey, let's fall behind the desk, but out the window, a little different. Well, Arnie, it was very much on their mind that, yeah, if we could just get them behind the bed, get them behind the desk, you forget about them because we've all been kids. They were all kids, the people making this film. I think they really are able to tap in well to things that are pretty universal with children and their toys. And that helps me even as an adult buy into this. It brings back, I guess that sense of nostalgia, just thinking back about my youth. And yeah, you lose a toy behind a desk and you didn't know it fell there and you kind of just forget about it over time. But man, does it go Lord of the Flies quick with those toys? 
I can't believe the speed at which they ostracize and turn on Woody. I don't know. I kind of buy it. I mean, he was beloved. He was their leader. And now, in their view, they believe he has pushed this toy out the window out of jealousy. Not because Buzz was something evil. It's just, I'm jealous. He's taking my spot, so I'm going to murder him. Yeah, and it's split down the middle. Slinky Dog is still his defender. Bo Peep is still his defender. It's more the cynical... Mr. Potato Head, who is not a kind word for anyone. I mean, that's Don Rickles' want. You know, he was the insult comic. Yeah, and they said with Mr. Potato Head, you think about this toy where its parts are always popping out and coming undone, you would have a chip on your shoulder. So yeah, Mr. Potato Head's very grumpy, very mean. Right. But they do scale down the story quite a bit the moment Buzz goes out the window because Andy was wanting to go to Pizza Planet with Buzz, which makes sense. Take the spaceman to the Pizza Planet Again, you can understand Woody going to that extreme. It's not like Buzz wanted to be with Andy. So why shouldn't the one that wants to be with Andy be the one that gets to take that trip? He can only take one toy. Speaking of which, I just want to step aside and, you know, subtext in this movie never explained. They are moving. This is a what appears to be a single mother with a very, very young baby. What do you think the story is? <laughs> Again, there's a lot of, go to Reddit, there's a million theories where they try to string things from the other films, other Pixar films. There are people that try to unify all this together. I sense that she shared a house with somebody, a partner, and is leaving this house because it didn't work out. I mean, that baby is too young, unless it was unplanned. I could go a lot of different ways with this, but my sense is that it's pretty fresh for her, and she needs to get out of this house for bad memory reasons. These are not characters. These are story points there's no emotion to the mother she exists just to say oh we'll find your toy oh happy birthday if there was a single scene i might have given this a thought until you asked the question i never thought about it i'm sure the screenwriters did because you know you always think those things through but that's like asking what happens to statler and waldorf when they go home do they have wives <laughs> Do you have asked that kind of shit all the time, Arnie? What are you talking about? You can get really caught up in the nits. Yes. I think it's a fair question. The out-of-story reason is they just didn't want to put humans in this. They only had one model, and it's like, okay, we'll change the color of the hair and make it a little bigger, a little smaller. They just didn't want to put a lot of humans because they knew that was a weak spot. The mom's face looks like Andy's face, looks like the baby's face. Like Sid, looks like Molly, looks like Hannah. Yes. Exactly. It's all the same model. I mean, they do this through it. They're like, yeah, we had six trees, so we have to like rotate them so you're seeing different sides because they don't want to have the backgrounds feel like a Hanna-Barbera Scooby-Doo cartoon where it's just rotating, but they had limits. As good as this looks with the toys and as groundbreaking as it is, it was not easy to do. They had limits to the models they could make and the time it would take and the rendering and all that. And I think it works. If you guys ever watched Muppet Babies and remember Nanny... Nanny was nothing but a pair of socks that would come in from time to time, so you knew these kids weren't unsupervised. And the fact that we barely ever see human faces, we just see bodies as they're walking away, works to me because this is a toy point of view story. We're down at the 12-inch level. And it should be said, we mentioned Sid, he was introduced very uh, dramatically as the next door neighbor. You can tell everything by the shirt he wears. It's black. It's got a skull on it. He's strapping a G.I. Joe with a big rocket. What? No, don't say G.I. Joe. They wanted to have an actual G.I. Joe character 
Hasbro said no. It's same with Barbie. They wanted Barbie to show up in this one. They're like, and your silly cartoon? No way. Barbie's above you. Well, we'll, we'll see. That's going to change real quick. Hey, that friend of ours who ended up burning down his house, the first thing I ever saw him destroy was G.I. Joe figures with firecrackers. I may have done this once or twice. I'll admit it. Yeah, I don't think that Sid is so different from many kids. He's older is what it is. He's older than Andy, and who knows? Andy might decide that it is fun to torture his toys once he outgrows them as pretend playmates. But Sid, I think another reason why the toys might really be judging Woody harshly is because Buzz has fallen down there and he may be in Sid's yard. He may have actually endangered Buzz's life by putting him down there. But Buzz is not dead. He's very angry, and he's going to hop in the back of the car, get some bugs splattered on his windshield, but eventually come down through the moonroof and try to take down Woody when the family pulls into the gas station. And this is a unusual complication to the story that they get both separated from the family. And this is where the story kicks in. We're half an hour into the movie and it's a road movie. They need to get home basically. And how are they going to do that? Getting left behind is every child's worst fear. If we're to think of these toys as children, this is like a nightmare scenario. Suddenly my protector is gone. I don't know how to get home. What am I going to do? This was always the idea for Toy Story. From the time that they were thinking about Ten Toy the movie back in 1990, they said, this is the first scene we wrote. And it is the crux. It could have been the whole movie, The Voyage Home. It could have been two mismatched people on the road trying to find their way back home. I think there's some interesting details where, again, you see the differences in their personalities, but it tells me so much. There's a semi that's pulling up at this gas station. And what does Woody do? He flops and goes into toy mode. And Buzz kind of just stands there. That truck almost runs over Woody. Like that tire gets right to his hat. And to me, I don't know. It's just a subtle thing. He's so slavish to being a toy and playing by these rules. I mean, there's rules. We're going to find out later with Sid that there are rules that these toys live by. And he almost gets crushed for that. I don't know. It's a nice little subtle moment for me that just tells me again with the difference between these. And maybe that's saying something you don't always have to play your role maybe it's a little dangerous if you're always playing that role and i'm never sure what the rules of mortality are for toys i mean we see sid blowing them up and i can assume that's death we see the one get broken but he lived but is broken and can't be fixed I don't know which parts of Woody are plastic. He's obviously stuffed, which is, again, kind of a weird toy for a kid in the 90s. Some parts of him could have been run over and just, I think, left some stains. But yeah, the fact that it was going over the head, I'm assuming that was plastic. It's so hard to tell because it's rendered weird. Everything here is glossy. You know, this is 1995 computers, and I am not disparaging it because it is revolutionary in every way, and it looks really good, but... I can't tell some of the materials apart from other materials. It's not there yet. Yeah, and keep in mind, Woody accepts that he's a toy, doesn't want to be seen as something different, and Buzz is just running around being like, okay, I got to find another ship. Like, he's convinced he knows something about a backstory that must have been on the back of the box or something about Emperor Zerg building a secret weapon somewhere. And so the only way Woody can get him back on board to getting to Pizza Planet is by saying that the delivery truck that comes into the gas station is actually a rocket that could take them to Star Command. 
And Stuart, you're saying that this could have been the movie, just a road trip. I feel like this is a risk. And I feel like Pixar often does that. Sometimes it works out like I love Ratatouille and that's about a rat that pulls a dude's hair and makes him a great chef. That's a crazy idea. That shouldn't work. And then in Up, I don't have a problem with a bunch of balloons lifting a house up in the sky. But when you get dogs doing a dog fight, literally in airplanes at the end, I'm like, uh, this might be a little too much for me. But I do feel like this is a risk having them now interacting with other humans and we're going to get in this car and buckle up and go to different locations. You would would have been safe if this movie just took place in Andy's room. It is a risk to have them go out and how are they going to interact amongst other humans? I think it's a necessary risk. I understand what you're saying, but had this stayed in the toy room, it's a good first act to introduce us to all the characters and things, but we need to see them out of their comfort zone, both of them. And that's what makes this movie is seeing the two of them bonding while on the road. I mean, again, it's not revolutionary storytelling to have two opposites on a road trip that bond planes trains and automobiles is the first of hundreds that come to mind but it does take this movie to a new level of storytelling sophistication and i like how they're always telling us about their personalities buzz he's like oh this is a spaceship i'm gonna get in and buckle up and woody again I'm a toy. I got to play it safe. I got to hide. And he gets penalized for that. He gets crushed by that toolbox or whatever's in the back of that truck. I think they could have spent more time on the road if they had the technical means to actually have different places to go. I actually think we end up in another room very, very quickly. They blow their wad on Pizza Planet. It's really cool what we get to see here. But very quickly, they're going to take him back into another child's room because I don't think they have the background modeling in-house. I don't think they have the main frames that can create the kind of road adventure we would expect in a live action movie. And that is the difficult part when you got to have moving backgrounds. Again, you don't want it to look like Scooby-Doo when they're being chased by a ghost. And in a room, you have a 3D model of that and it's much easier to do than these backgrounds. Yeah, we go to Pizza Planet. That is my favorite scene in the movie for two reasons. First, Sid, you mentioned, is already there playing whack-a-mole with an alien. It's whack-a-alien. They're not grammatically correct. I love that. With a chestburster. But it's just fun because it's so gory. It is straight out of Alien that these aliens are <laughs> popping out of the chest. And then I want to say from a technical level here, a programmatic level, this is their showcase scene. This is the Oscar-winning scene with the lighting effects, the reflections, everything that's going on here, the depth. You say they can't have a lot of people. They may have one human body that's everywhere, but they've got all these arcade games with the lights going. Just the shadow and the reflection off of Buzz Lightyear's helmet with the various lights, the purple and red that brings in a totally new color palette that we didn't have in Andy's bedroom. Mind-blowing in 1995 and still, because it's not just a technological achievement, but it's an artistic achievement, it holds up now 25 years later. Plus, theme restaurants are just fun. I mean, Pulp Fiction was having fun with its own version the year before. It just was a phenomenon of the 90s. And the fact that someone had created a kind of like a Chuck E. Cheese, but in outer space. Yeah, a great fun. Certainly when they get into the claw machine, this is the movie hitting uh, real high. My absolute favorite characters in all of this are the zealot aliens, the claw. I could just have an entire movie about them and be very, very happy. I don't need Buzz. I don't need Woody. I need more aliens in my life. There may be some short like that. Careful. That's how we wound up with Minions. Yes. <laughs> too much of a good thing is sometimes too much. All right. I like Minions. What can I say? 
I do like them here. Yeah, take me to your leader, the club. Again, a nice little reference. I thought of Close Encounters when they're like in India and they're like, where did you hear this music? And everyone's hand shoots up and the aliens do that same motion here. It's fun. I've never seen a claw machine that has all the same toy in it. I never see a claw machine that could grab onto a dome like Buzz's helmet. No, those claw machines, I have one Marjorie Apprise or two in my day, but I've probably spent $50 on $2 worth of stuffed crap. No, no, they are literally rigged. Yeah, they're programmed to only pay out like once every hundred games or something. Yeah, they should be as regulated as slot machines because yes, there is skill there, which they say makes it not gambling. That claw lets go sometimes too. So <laughs> and for me, it's much fun as this whole sequence is, there's a lot of gimmies here. Like, okay, Sid's also going to be here and he's also going to go to this claw machine and win these toys. It's a fun scene. I do feel like they're like, okay, how do we get into Sid's house, but still have fun doing it. And this is what they came up with. Yeah. Sid wins the grand prize because with one claw grab, he gets three. He gets a little alien squeak toy. He gets buzz. And because Woody won't let him go, he knows he cannot go back to Andy's without buzz. The other toys will not accept his presence unless he proves to them that he did not kill this spaceman. So he's not letting go either, and all three wind up in the bin, and Sid throws him in his bag and skateboards home. And the alien is so happy. <laughs> it's just... It's awful what happens to him when he gets to Sid's. <laughs> I know, but... Buzz is uncaring, Woody is still neurotic, but that alien is so happy and then he goes home and he becomes a dog toy, that poor thing. I go to a better place. It's kind of like any 70s sci-fi movie, Logan's Run, right? I mean, you, yeah. always, you always think that the paradise you're going to is going to be so great and then you find out you're Soylent Green. You know? Yes, I was thinking Soylent Green. And we're going to learn Sid is non-discriminate with what toys he'll destroy. He has a sister, too, just like Andy does, a little sister. He's going to grab her doll and take it upstairs and do an operation. And I kind of remember being this little... When I was maybe seven or eight, my sister, who was much older, got a Cabbage Patch Kid. And man, did I want to destroy it and mutilate it and set its head on fire. <laughs> Here's the thing with Sid. I get that we're not supposed to like him because he blows up toys and he feeds them to his dog. But I was like this. I like taking my toys apart. G.I. Joe's, you can take that screw out of their back, pop all their parts off. I'd swap up, make my own characters. Look, they need a villain, I guess, in this movie. But Sid, he probably goes on to become like an engineer or something. He's very creative. He'll outgrow blowing stuff up. But I do feel like he's villainized a little too much. Like, he's a very creative kid making his own toys. It's like Legos. Don't put together what's on the box. Just make your own creation. And Sid does that. Oh, I always liked following what was on the box. But I'm a rule follower. <laughs> but <laughs> again, though, I look at just story tropes. This reminds me a lot of... Rudolph and the Island of the Misfit Toys, right? These are the toys that are broken. They're called what? Cannibals here. <laughs> yeah, I think they're definitely going for that Christmas special stop motion feel. I also get the sense this could be a little Tim Burton. Like he would grow up and make Beetlejuice with these very same things. There's a reference in every Pixar film and you'll see it as the license plate. In this one, A113, that is the classroom at Cal Arts that Lasseter went to and Tim Burton. That's like a lot of these animator guys that ended up with Disney actually had classes in this specific one. So I, I wouldn't be shocked if Burton was on their mind. Also because one of the reasons 
Disney was able to take a risk with this film was because Nightmare Before Christmas, which if you're on Podbean, you can listen to that. That one they released under Touchstone. That wasn't a Disney film originally. I mean, it's still Disney, but they didn't put the Magic Castle at it originally. But because that became a success, they're willing to take these risks. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they were giving a nod to Tim Burton with this. It definitely feels like a creative kid who could, yeah, either be a serial killer or a goth or an engineer. There's lots of paths that he could follow. But in the context of this movie, in which our thoughts are only for what's going to happen to these toys, we're very, very concerned when they're in the room full of black light and all these rock posters, metal dork. I don't know what that band is, but it can't be good. I think they turned into Nickelback. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but if you listen to Metal Dork, you want to hurt things. And uh, I know I do. Maybe I don't blame Mattel, but this is where Barbie was supposed to come in. She was going to be Sarah Connor. She's going to drive in with that pink Corvette and say, come with me if you want to live and try to rescue Woody and Buzz. But they could not get the rights to Barbie. So she is not here trying to save them. Were they going to mangle her? I mean, I feel like there's some... No, she was going to be the sister's doll. So she was still going to be in good condition, but she was going to have that Sarah Connor attitude. And I did read at the time, again, I was reading a lot of entertainment magazines and things. These companies were kicking themselves. Oh, yeah. Much like M&M's not wanting to be the candy that E.T. ate, and so they lost out to Reese's Pieces. Every toy company that said, I don't want to be part of your silly computer movie was just banging their heads against the wall for not having free product placement. Even toy stores under-ordered Buzz toys. They said in the whole U.S. they only had like 60,000 pre-orders and there was massive shortages. And then, yeah, they ended up selling like 9 million of them once they realized, oh, people like this movie. This is a thing. I mean, you could even say Disney itself underfunded this movie. They only gave them $30 million. An animated feature would have easily had double that in this time. Yeah. And nowadays they're spending 150, they're spending the amount that they spent on live action features for the Pixar films. Right. I think what really tells you though that Sid is evil, I don't know if you guys noticed this, in the hallway, the carpet has the shining pattern. No, I didn't notice that. Yes, I guess this is something that pops up in a bunch of Pixar films. They're fans of The Shining, but yeah, that hallway carpet is the exact carpet from the Overlook Motel that little Danny Torrance is riding his big wheel on. I think you can call him a little bit evil because he's sadistic with his magnifying glass. It's end up going to be useful. They're actually going to get a good idea out of this. I couldn't tell. I tried to watch for the rest of the movie. Does Woody have that little singe mark on his forehead? Or is he able to rub it away? Because Sid definitely burns sunlight onto his head for a few seconds. It's there for the entire car chase and everything. Oh, okay. He tries to wipe it off, and I thought it might be a big thing when he finally gets back to Andy. Andy be like, oh, you're damaged. But when they get to the new house and everything, I guess Andy cleaned him up or something. The spot's no longer there later in the movie. Maybe these toys can heal. I don't know the rule <laughs> of sentient toys, but it is there until they get to winter. Well, we definitely see these misfit toys have the power to heal. They will eventually put Buzz's arm back on, and that's because Buzz goes through his big moment at the 46-minute mark in this house as they're trying to escape. He winds up in the dad's room. You might forget that Sid has a mother and a dad. The mother is only a voice in this movie. The dad is only limbs hanging off a recliner in a dark room, darker than this blacklight room, and that's where we see what they actually wanted to put at the start of this movie. This movie was supposed to open with a commercial for Buzz Lightyear and Andy was going to watch it and say that's the toy I want. I think it's much more effective to show it here. 
I agree. It works so much better to have him have this crisis to realize everything he's believed is just on television. I wondered again, why the toy barn? Why not Toys R Us? Why not KB Toys? Hell, Walmart. I was shopping for toys. I was collecting Star Wars toys at this point in my life. I knew where the toys were. I never went to a <laughs> barn. Well, yeah, you got to get rights and all that. And they've, again, no one wanted to be in this silly computer movie. But yeah, Al's Toy Barn, that's going to be a big deal next week. But Pendulette doing the voice of this commercial. Really? I did not know that. Yes. And I love the fact that when they show the toy flying through space in, in flashing letters, toy does not fly. How yes. many times did they do that? <laughs> I mean, I think about those Manglors, Arnie. They told you a lie. You could rip them up, <laughs> tear them to pieces, and stick them back on, and it's like new. So many defective toys were sold to children of the 80s under false promises. And here's another one. Yeah, it doesn't fly, except we're... Yeah, a lot of them, uh, a lot of toys to this very day will have commercials or boxes where it says in fine print, toys shown in fantasy situation it may require hand support, blah, blah, blah. But that's not what you want to see. I mean... Although it worked for me as a kid, when I saw Star Wars toys, what did they sell me? Kids playing with Star Wars toys. By the 90s, they had to go bigger. They had to make the toys seem real. But Buzz, he thought he could fly. He tried it earlier, and he kind of lucked out. Woody's going to call him on it. It's falling with style. But this is going to make Buzz realize, I am a toy. I'm made in Taiwan. I'm missing an arm. I'm going to rip my own decal off. I don't know if he ever gets the decal back. No, this is really good stuff. Emotionally impactful to see this character that was so confident. And now he's, yeah, he's lost that arm. Sid's sister takes him to a tea party and he's acting like he's almost drunk. Just the level of depression that they're willing to show here. This is good stuff. And I don't think kids are going to get it. But as an adult, I'm like, wow, they really nailed it. Yeah, I mean, I think kids understand he breaks his arm. But what they won't understand is how his ego has been even more badly damaged. Again, his whole sense of self has been taken from him, just as it was taken from Woody in the beginning of the movie. They are growing closer, even though they are both being reduced. Again, Woody has kind of just been a jerk in a lot of this, but yeah, he is warming up to Buzz, and you do get this heartbreaking scene with Woody and Slinky Dog. You know, Woody is trying to call to the toys in Andy's room that's just across the way, and they all turn their back except Slinky Dog, and then they find out, you know, but Woody has to do this whole charade with Buzz's arms, like they're pals, and they're shaking hands, and that ruse is found out, and Slinky turns his back. Like, this is the one ally that he had that was sticking with him, and now he's turning his back, closing that shade. Very powerful and emotional moment. Yeah, rejection. We all feel it is at yeah probably young ages so it is something that we need to be able to talk to our kids about to be able to show them this movie i think is a great place to start that conversation and this is where the two buzz and woody really become friends at this point is when they're both at their lowest Woody needs to talk Buzz up. Buzz can't just be this lethargic, catatonic Cameron from Ferris Bueller if they're <laughs> going to survive this. So he's got to be like, you are a cool toy. But it's going to depress him because he's finally going to have to admit the truth. Why would anyone want to play with me because you're so much cooler than I am? Because it's too easy to have people become friends just because they're on a, a life or death stakes together. Here, they have to have that emotional connection where they really do bond, and we get that. 
And what bonds the most is that Andy wrote his name on both of their feet. As long as that's important to you. I mean, keep in mind, up to this point, Buzz didn't need Andy. And now he has to realize he's not a space ranger. The pitch that Woody gives is, this is better. Toys are better than space rangers because there's a child that loves you when you're a toy. And so it's all about getting back to Andy at this point. It it helps shape what they're going to do. Not only are they coming together, but it's very clear the mission is get free, get out of here, and make sure we get on that moving van that's pulling up to take Andy and his mother away this morning. And their escape is the one thing where I feel, yes, the toys break their rules, but by doing that, doesn't the movie break its rules? By allowing the toys to scare Sid by moving on their own, you know, if they were going to break that rule, they could have just done that a lot earlier and gotten out of this a lot easier. Maybe? Is there a particular point that you were thinking of? They could have yelled out to Andy when they, Sid was taking them at Pizza Planet. You know, something like that. Yeah, but it's always a last resort. I don't think they ever saw Andy at Pizza Planet. I never did. I saw him walk in, and they could have yelled at that time, but they were hiding under cups and cartons and things. It just... It seems like this entire movie, they have had the obstacle of we can't be seen. And then they take an easy way out of saying, oh, how are we going to get out of this impossible situation? Let's be seen. Maybe you can consider that good, unexpected writing. I consider it a little bit of a cheat. I feel like if you would have done that with Andy, that ruins the relationship between toy and human. With Sid, the toys are scared of him, and now they're going to make him scared of toys. It's a little piece of poetic justice. Maybe they could have come up with some big action scene to get away. I do like, if you're going to set up Sid as the villain, as this person that tortures toys, that they're going to torture him. We're going to see Woody go full exorcist and spin his head around. I think we see some toys do like the Apocalypse Now thing where they like rise up out of the muddy water like Martin Sheen. And I thought it was like zombie toys rising from the grave. I didn't see it. <laughs> yeah. Because this has been a character that is a horror to toys, that they turn it into a little horror moment, it kind of works. Could they come up with a more plausible way where they didn't have to reveal their toys? Sure, but again, poetic justice for me. The other thing I like about it is is the fact that Woody's best skill is that he's a great orator. I mean, that he can rally the troops, that he is the one to always be the center point. The reason why he's the leader is not because Andy loves him the most, but because he's the sensible one. While other toys freak out and have their breakdowns, he's always going to be the one to be the glue and pull it together. And and again, his plan here is very intricate and it works. And I don't hate it. I'm just saying that it bugs me a little bit. I do like the misfit toys, though. I like the way that they unscrew the light bulb and trick the dog into getting out of the house. They never talk. I get the impression that they can't talk because they are these crazy misfits. And they never are mad at Woody for calling them cannibals. They don't hold that against him. They know they're freaks. No, that's the big understanding moment. Again, for Woody, he judged buzz and then he judged these misfit toys and they're actually really nice they're not cannibals just misunderstood and then we can move on to the climax which is that the van is pulling away Andy and his mom are in a separate minivan and there go all the friends they have no idea where the new location is if they don't catch up with one of those vehicles they have no chance of ever having Andy love them again It's the action-packed climax. I felt bad because Woody ropes the poor remote control car RC into this whole thing. RC was safe on the truck, but when the other toys throw Woody off, I mean, again, Lord of the Flies here. 
I feel bad for Slinky. I get really worried about him. He gets stretched so far in this, trying to hold on to Woody and Buzz and hold on to the truck. And I thought he would be marred for life, honestly. Yeah, ruin that spring in him. But again, they didn't want to go with the easy way out. They, they tease it. Woody has that match. He's thrown on the barbecue by Sid. Sid put a match in his little gun holster, said, you're next. He still got that match, and Buzz still has that rocket taped to him. He goes to light, and they're like, ah, that would have been too easy just to shoot off the rocket and catch up. So that match gets blown out, and they have to call back to the magnifying glass. Again, that's what I respect about Pixar is that they present an easy fix for a problem a character has fallen into and then says, nope, we're not going to do that. And so, yeah, who would have thought that they would have lit the rocket by using the magnifying trick that was used to torture Woody? It's good writing because it's not obvious. They are setting up and introducing the audience, especially the younger ones, to the concept of using glass plus the sun in order to create a burn. And yet, It's not done in such a way that you think, oh, that's going to come back. But when it does, it's been introduced and you just kind of go with it. And of course, we need to believe that Buzz can fly. Even though he's not a flying toy, we need for his confidence to be somewhat regained. It's kind of awesome that Sid's means of destruction really becomes his means of becoming whole again as a person. He's able to get airborne, throw RC into the truck, and then I don't know how he comes undone from the firecracker. It's the really cool thing because the firecracker is what makes him fly, but it's his wings that free him from the firecracker before it pops. So it is actually something of him that makes him special, not just the idea, but only he could pop the wings to get rid of the firecracker, and then only he could use those wings to glide to the car. To fall with style. Yeah. Question, Molly. I think they're getting at something about the really young children and the power of imagination. She sees all of this. She's the only one that actually knows all of this occurs. I mean, yeah. While listening to the soundtrack to The Lion King. Yeah, Hakuna Matata. No worries for her. Yeah, but I do think the movie is saying that you outgrow the ability to know these toys come alive. That what you're saying is a cheat is, in fact, the way that we first experience toys. And then at some point, we outgrow the belief that they are alive. I mean, that's like every Santa Claus movie, right? Like, kids believe in Santa and then they grow. That's Elf. The Not enough people believe in Santa now and he loses his power it's yeah that mindset that gives him the power well it's the peter pan story the kids believe in fairies and the adults don't and that's why the kids are able to fly is because they believe i think it all goes back to that and it's then used in so many other stories in so many other ways especially in the spielbergian 80s where the kids would always see something that the parents didn't see or wouldn't believe Yeah, I mean, the Peter Pan syndrome is actually not something you want to emulate. Usually Peter Pan reference is is negative. Yeah, someone that is infantile and and not mature, but I get what you're saying. Yes, in terms of a children's adventure, we want to always retain a little bit of our innocence, if only because it allows us to see magical things that no one else can appreciate. And so we end at Christmas. Makes sense. That was around the time the movie was released. What could be worse than Buzz Lightyear? A puppy. I love that joke because that is the one thing that could outdo all the toys is a brand new little puppy. As long as it doesn't look as bad as Sid's puppy, I think that's worse looking than any of the humans in this film. <laughs> yeah. And dogs, I can tell you from experience, they will chew up whatever toy you have. It oh. will be your last toy. Yeah, I had a $100 Japanese collectible that became a dog toy when I wasn't looking. Ooh. So, yeah, I had to keep 
all the doors shut and all the toys, if it was left on a table, he would jump on that table to get that toy and destroy it. So I ended up blaming myself for every toy he destroyed. So yes, a new puppy can kill them all. Is that the sequel? Is that what happens in Toy Story 2? The puppy just mangles them and Andy has to grow up and play with video games because his toys are dog chewed? I mean, I definitely think this is going to cause problems for them. But hey, they get a Mrs. Potato Head for Idaho, at least. Maybe he'll finally be less grumpy now that he's getting some. Yeah. Although I don't know how that works. I guess you don't know who's going to voice Mrs. Potato Head, because it's not going to go that way. (laughs) It's not Cindy Crawford the Potato Head? (laughs) No, no. Not a sweet potato. And we get one more time, you get a friend in me. Again, this time sung by the real stars, Randy Newman and Lyle Lovett. Remember when he was a thing? Yeah, I remember when he was married to Julia Roberts. Ooh, really? Well, that was when he was a (laughs) thing. This is it. This is that year. Well, you're not talking about the time when he was playing DJ Qual's father on The New Guy? I don't know what that is. <laughs> I like the Lyle Lovett-less version better, but I do like some Lyle Lovett songs. It's nothing against him, but I think Randy does better solo on this. They were even thinking about a full-on Broadway, every toy singing to the crowd kind of ending. I mean, the way a musical would end, but this seems like a better compromise. I just feel like this is destined for Broadway Anyway, the way Disney is going. Oh, no, Disney had live performance of this on their cruise. There was a live version of Toy Story where people are dressed up and move around and sing. But you had to go on a Disney cruise to see it. That seems more appropriate. Broadway, you do have to ask a little bit more at those ticket prices. Well, maybe we'll get a live action version of this then. Disney will do it that way. But for this 3D animated version, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend a Toy Story? Jacob. We brought up Tron at the beginning, and that was something I was thinking about when I finished this film, because when we're reviewing films, I mean, something I I at least consider is, what is this film's place in history? This has a significant place. There's a reason why people talk about Toy Story, because it kicked off Pixar, it made Pixar what it is, and what it did for computer animated features. And I go to Tron, and that had all that groundbreaking stuff too, And it's not a classic, maybe a cult classic if I want to be kind to it, but it is not a classic because it doesn't have the human element. It doesn't have the story element. It doesn't have those things that we want to see in our stories and experiences and emotions and drama and all that. And that, this is not just groundbreaking because of what it did with computers, but it's a classic because of the story it tells and the way it tells it. It's a movie that I feel, you know, a lot of times people get upset with us. Oh, it explained why this happened in this movie. You just missed this one line. I shouldn't have to hear just one line to get a plot point. And this one, it shows me, I feel these emotions by the way these characters are animated and how they interact with each other. And then the level of emotional depth and existential crisis and depression and all those things that they're willing to explore in a movie about toys that come to life. I don't think Mannequin ever got this deep. (laughs) Wow. It's just amazing. And coming back to it again, in my 40s now, the last time I probably saw this was 10 years ago. Wow, it it struck me even more this time watching it. It it hit me even more than any time I've watched it before because, yeah, Pixar had in mind, let's not just make this for kids. Let's make it for adults. Let's make it for teenagers. And they succeeded. Technologically, storytelling, emotional depth, all of that, they succeeded. Just great feature-length film out of the gate. Strong recommend. Stuart. 
Yeah, I agree. Pixar could have probably made a lot of money just by being this first computer animated feature, doing it this way. Keep in mind, 1995, they were the first, and Disney had just had Lion King and its whole string of hits, and 10 years later, almost nobody was watching cell-drawn animation. It was all Pixar. They owned it. And yeah, so some of it is the technical. We were just wowed by what computers could do. But I agree, the reason why there are sequels to cover in the weeks to come is because they made the characters. They made psychologically 3D characters, and teens and adults could see themselves in Buzz and Woody as much as the small fry. There is some relatability at whatever age you're at because of the themes. Frankly, I think they're a funnier pair of bickerers than Riggs and Murtaugh. We're covering that Lethal Weapon series over on our Friday. I'm just going to go ahead and say these are the better films on the Tuesday because they do better with the same themes. They're actually the same movies. They're both about retirement, finding purpose, getting partnered with someone that you don't like. But Toy Story doesn't have coked up hookers diving out of buildings. Buzz's fall is less sexy, but I think more impactful. Uh, This movie would get a much stronger recommend for me if it started with a coked out Barbie jumping out the window. (laughs) (laughs) See, I I really think that's what you can't do. You have to give your heart to the passion, to the pathos, to the deep reservoir of feeling that they have going on here. Yeah, I feel like you'd get that in a Shrek film, not in a Toy Story one. (laughs) Yeah, it's not about attitude. They've got comedy here. They've got stuff that will put a smile on your face. But what makes this film great is the way that it moves your heart. And Pixar got lucky. They really did have a film that was as groundbreaking as Snow White, and it did the same thing that that movie did for Walt Disney when it kicked off 80 years before. I mean, they were able to launch their amazing animated studio, and this is the kickoff to a very successful string of films. By any measure, they have an incredible track record, and it started strong right here. Yeah, and... Outside of its place in history, because there's no doubt that this did completely revolutionize animated film. And I think it's twofold. Yes, people loved the newfound computer graphics and a new way to see animated films. But also, as you said, Stuart, they had good storytelling at the time when Disney would decide we're going to rely on Tarzan with Phil Collins songs or uh, let's bring Demi Moore in for Hunchback of Notre Dame. I mean, they were kind of lazy in their storytelling. Nobody was enjoying those films. I remember they tried to best Pixar with Tarzan. Remember that? Tarzan, when he surfs trees. When he surfs on the trees, yes. computers. <laughs> and it didn't work. But, yeah, I mean, we know what the CG animated revolution has become. But this movie, the question I had is, would it hold up? I saw it once in theaters, and I walked out going, yeah, it was pretty good. You know, I was 21 years old, drinking, driving, not at the same time, but you know what I'm saying. I was toy collecting, but I didn't think my toys came to life. My imagination was not that of a young child. And so if to a jaded 21-year-old, it could speak to me at that time, and I would have recommended it then, I was curious what it would be like coming back. Now, I did watch this last year as part of the movie challenge we did, so I've seen this. This was my third watching, and I think it does get better. I think it plays well to my age group because they did pick multi-generational toys with Mr. Potato Head and with Slinky Dog and all of those types of things. And everybody at some point has had a toy dinosaur. I had them growing up even long before Jurassic Park. So 
I think that the voice acting they got, the writing, and the animation all come together to make a really solid movie. I don't hold this as one of my favorites. It just didn't hit me at that point in life where I would cherish this. Had I been younger or possibly older, I might appreciate it more. But as it is, it's definitely a recommend. Yeah, I definitely was impressed. And again, I was in full film snob mode. I didn't want to like it. I went because I was with family and children, but I was rooting for them after this point. What was interesting, as you said, Jacob, it was like, okay, well, now Christmas is coming up. I know what to get them. There wasn't the toys. There was no cartoon. There was a Sega Genesis game. I did play a side scroller that kind of took fun bits from the movie, but they didn't know what they had. Disney undervalued how marketable a movie about toys could be for them, which is just crazy. The closest they came is, I guess, on Saturday mornings, they had some interstitial material they called Toy Story Treats. They couldn't afford to scrape together a full cartoon, so they just told the animators, like, make the commercials in between the real Saturday morning cartoons and keep coming up with that content. What surprised me is if there's something I know about Pixar, it's the bloopers at the end. This movie had no bloopers at the end. Again, this is very hard to do this animation. I think that will come when the animation gets easier. I guess they started that with A Bug's Life. I specifically remember yes. the bugs having like the boom mics come in and things, but I thought I'd see some of that here. I always loved the Pixar bloopers. You get more aliens with Toy Story treats, uh, your favorite characters. What they knew is that you couldn't get Hanks and Allen to do that crap, so they just spent all their time with the supporting characters. The green soldiers, all of those guys, that was what they marketed. And, and again, they just didn't know what they had they were going to rush a sequel out for video believe it or not thank god they didn't otherwise we may not be covering the movie we're going to cover next week well that was the disney mo but we will talk about that next week listeners thank you for joining us as we build up to toy story 4 again a highly requested series hopefully you've enjoyed this show and also hopefully you could join us on friday as we discuss that other buddy comedy lethal weapon Three. Again, gonna say, not as good as Toy Story 2, <laughs> 3, probably not 4. It's probably not as good as Pocahontas 2, quite frankly. I might watch Cars before Lethal Weapon 3, to be honest. I would. <laughs> well, you can hear the full dissection, apparently, vivisection from these two of Lethal <laughs> Weapon 3 on Friday. And we'll be back next week with Toy Story 2. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Until next time. You've got a friend in us. You still worried? About Andy? Nah. It'll be fun while it lasts. I'm proud of you, cowboy. Besides, when it all ends, I'll have old Buzz Lightyear to keep me company. For infinity and beyond. Thank you for listening to this now playing podcast movie review. I have been chosen. Farewell, my friends. I go on to a better place. If you enjoyed this show, you can help us out by leaving us a five star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. If your kid loves you so much, why is he leaving? Want to hear more reviews like this one? You can find hundreds of other movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. In the vacuum of space, they cannot hear you square! In our archives section are over 800 reviews. 
Listen to our hosts discuss horror, sci-fi, comedy, action, drama, and more. Wow, this place is amazing. Plus, you can hear reviews of every movie based on Marvel or DC Comics. Are you kidding? It's a commercial! A new, totally free movie review podcast is posted every Tuesday. So come back each week for another new show. At last, I'm going to get played with! Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. If you'd help us, one toy to another, I'd sure be grateful. You can support Now Playing by joining our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. Backers can get early access to reviews, unedited reviews, exclusive shows not available anywhere else, and more. Details are at NowPlayingPatron.com. You are going to help create happy memories that will last for the rest of her life. Huh? At our Podbean site, you can also support the show by listening to any of our donation shows. Series like Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Phantasm, Jaws, and others are available for a small, one-time contribution. We all have to make sure nothing happens to him. We want to specially thank our Podbean donors of $50 or more. Brent, AZ Kovacs, Brant Paddock, Nafe Williams, J. Clark Fisher, Logan2012, Neil Mulcahy, Roy Lake, T. Durden182, V.C. Neri, Wes Zimmerman2, Paul Blanchett, Len King Jr., Bowerman Entertainment, Cross CR, FisherJaw12, Jazer Watowski, Martin Hibbets, New York Giants Fan3342, Rudix, Andrew Doran, VMC Clentic, Now Playing Fan, Big Nico2047, Developer Adrian, Gojira76, Kiefer42, Moe, Price Jared24, Sphinctac, The Zabukazar, Adam Malowinski, Chris L. Harris, And Marup, D. Peters Versus, Brandante, James on Childress, Klein40, Mr. Osmus2, Robert Carter USC, Tikasta2176, TNF73, We Are Tessellate, Anakin Flair. Oh, thank you, thank, thank you all, thank you. You can also donate to us directly on PayPal. Details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You have saved our lives. We are eternally grateful. You saved their lives. Oh, my hero. Want 375 more Now Playing reviews? Get the Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Arnie, Stewart, Jacob, and Marjorie reviewed 125 different movies, each getting three recommends or not recommends. The ebook is available now, and the print book will be shipping soon. Find details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. Nirvana is coming. The mystic portal awaits. You can also follow Now Playing on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube for original video content. Uh, hi. Hello. Hi. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Everything's gonna be okay. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Good job, troops. We're that much closer to Woody. Now Playing is edited by Stephen, Heath, and Arnie. It's too short. We need more monkeys. There aren't any more. That's the whole barrel. Now Playing credits read by Brock. I don't believe that man's ever been to medical school. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You are a I don't care bear. 
Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. I have a question. Well, actually, not just one. I have all of them. I have all the questions. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Authority should derive from the consent of the governed, not from the threat of force. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of, and may not be used without the expressed written permission of, Venganza Media Incorporated. Shoots and ladders. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2019, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. So long, partner. Kaboom. Directed by John Lasseter. No lie? <laughs> He's RC. He doesn't speak. <laughs> you, you gotta um, rev him up. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. And Stuart? Really? That's your line, Arnie? <laughs> <laughs> I am still shocked from that. I'm like, okay. I guess Hold so. on. All right. Let me... Let me... I mean, no, I mean, don't, I mean, make, him, that, don't, that's make, it. don't make him do something he'll regret, you know. <laughs> and here's your friend and me, you know, like, just lay it on thick. <laughs> all right. Actually, that's my end line. I have an end line. You've all, you've got a friend in us. Uh-huh. Um, okay. Uh, Whatever. I don't feel like you have to. Here we go. Like John Ratzenberger, I think, has been in every single one. When I got his autograph on my Star Wars stuff, it was Star Wars, Cheers, and Pixar were all the things he had in front of him. He was one of the soldiers on Hoth, Stuart. I see you look confused. Yeah, I'm like, Star <laughs> He got an action figure. Okay, if you say so. <laughs> he went to Celebration last year. Yeah, good for him. Yeah, I had a $100 Japanese collectible that became a dog toy when I wasn't looking. Ooh. My dog, I mean, I... That's right, you got a bunch of dogs. <laughs> yeah, this one was a bad dog. He ate a movie. He ate The Losers. The entire disc, he Good ate Well, you should thank him for that. <laughs> yeah, I, he was right. That's my review as well. I remember coming home, he left the box torn up for me, but the disc was gone. Good, good review. Well, when's the last time you saw Mannequin? <laughs> In the 80s when it came out? <laughs> and, and what was the sequel? Mannequin on the Street? or Mannequin 2 on one? the Move. On the Move, yeah. Should have been in the trash. <laughs> uh, yeah, I saw that one too with Hollywood. <laughs> Meshach Taylor, may he rest in peace.